Bibles, we are in Zephaniah tonight, chapter 2, and we are looking at verses 11 through 15. Judgment on the Nations, part 2, is what I've titled the message. And, uh, whoops, ahead of myself, you guys are ahead of me. Our theme is uh, the coming day of the Lord, which is a broad theme in the Scriptures. And uh, the outline, we have chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, warning to Judah, of God's coming judgment. And then we're in the section in chapter 2, 4 through 3, 8, God's judgment on specific nations. And we will f- uh, round out the book, which is really my favorite part of the book, in chapter 3, 9 through 20, future restoration for Israel. But in Zephaniah chapter 1, God warns of coming devastating judgment, uh, especially in reference to Judah. And then in Zephaniah 2, he warns of coming devastating judgment on the nations surrounding Judah. In other words, on Israel's enemies. Now, the day of the Lord theme, as I say in Scripture, is a huge theme. And I define it this way. This is my own definition. I didn't steal this one from anybody. Uh, The day of the Lord is the time when God overtly intervenes in human affairs, especially in relation to Israel with catastrophic judgment in fulfillment of prophecy, which overwhelmingly demonstrates His Lordship. And we will really see that in a big way again tonight. Now, there are layers of emphasis related to the prophet Zephaniah's Day of the Lord judgment theme, as well as the other prophets. Some aspects involve God's people Judah, the Jews. Others involve the enemy nations around them. Some aspects relate to judgment that is near, such as in the Babylonian captivity, and others involve aspects that are distant, related to Messiah's coming kingdom, uh, the judgment related to that that time just before the coming kingdom. And so uh, we have noted this as far as the layers of the last of the, of the day of the Lord judgment. Number one, re- in reference to the Babylonian captivity. And interwoven with that theme in in reference to the second coming. And then also in reference to the dissolving of the present heavens and earth at the close of the millennial reign of Christ. And uh, this gets it, as far as the graphic here, prophetic telescope. You've got the prophet making the prophecies in relationship to the day of the Lord. There's a near aspect. There's a distant aspect. And they're interwoven as we... Uh, note here in Zephaniah and the other prophets as well. Well, the near aspect of the coming day of the Lord, judgment, related to God's judgment, not only on Judah, but also on the enemy nations of God's people, Israel, uh, Judah, Judah, Israel. Kind of using those interchangeably, um, but Judah really is in view here. Uh, Representative nations from the four corners, from the west to the east to the south, and north, all four corners, are addressed with application that stretches way into the future, culminating in the Messianic kingdom. Now, we saw last time in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, God addressing the Philistines to the west, and Ammon and Moab to the east. Now, Philistia would be wiped out, which they were by the Babylonians, also the historic relatives, who were the arch enemies of Israel, by the name of Moab and Ammon, they would also be wiped out because of their haughty mistreatment of Israel. And they were. In both 
the case of the Philistines and in the case of Moab and Ammon, they would be wiped out and then God's people, the Jews, would have possession of their land. Well, the text repeatedly shows just how serious it is to arrogantly threaten or abuse God's people Israel. Because to do so is really, you're not only just picking on the Jews, you're really defying the God of Israel, who is in covenant relationship with them. That's a really big deal before God. To show no regard for Israel is to show no regard for the God of Israel. You really can't separate Israel from her God in terms of uh, what God has ordained in terms of redemptive history. And even when Israel is under discipline, even then, even when Israel is not where she should be with the Lord, God still expects the nations uh, to take note of his covenant relationship with this special people. And we noted last time when we left off here in chapter 2, verse 10, this they, that's Moab and Ammon, shall have for their pride because they reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. So their judgment was coming because of how they had uh, been so arrogant and made these uh, threats against the, the people of God. Well, the God of Israel ever remains the covenant God of Israel. And he expects the nations of the world to regard him as such. Even when Israel is under discipline... By the way, they are even now. This is the times of the Gentiles. On their most holy site, the Temple Mount, you got the Dome of the Rock, that, that uh, Muslim shrine, and they hate it. And, uh, of course, the Muslims love it. It's the largest, tallest building in Jerusalem. You can see it from the whole of Jerusalem. And it's a, you know, it's a mark that Allah reigns here in, in the minds of the Muslims. Well, the Jews hate that. Times of the Gentiles. They're still kind of under the thumb of the Gentiles. Well, those that abuse his people Israel will suffer the consequences, just a matter of when, just as did the Philistines and Moab and Ammon. Well, Zephaniah at this point makes application that extends way into the future to the time of the Messianic kingdom, as we now see in verse 11. Zephaniah 2, 11. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth, people shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. So now he goes way into the future, way into the time of the, of the coming kingdom. And notice what he says there. Uh, the Lord will be awesome to them. The nations of the world in their haughtiness will be taken down by God. And God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will be exalted in the day of the Lord. That's what this day is ultimately about. It's about lordship. And God establishing his lordship for all to know and see. Without trying to sound redundant, the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord. This is all about lordship. That's why it's called the day of the Lord. The nations of the earth defy God's lordship in how they treat his people. But in the end, the God of Israel has his way with them, puts them down and exalts his lordship in the restoration of his covenant people who are also humbled in the process. God's doing a couple of things uh, in, the, in the time of Jacob's trouble. He's humbling Jacob and he's bringing punishment on the nations. 
By the way here, when it says uh, in my New King James, uh, the Lord will be awesome to them, both the New American Standard and the ESV translate this, uh, will be, uh, will, will uh, translate will be awesome to them as will be terrifying to them. The old King James had it, will be terrible unto them. The idea is terribly awesome. Now, none of us can even imagine how great and awesome God is. And when he brings down the hammer on these egomaniac nations who dared to defy the God of Israel in the mistreatment of his people Israel, when God rises up in the day of the Lord, his lordship will smash those nations. And it will be shock and awe. And it will be terribly awesome. The Lord will be awesome to them. Indeed, he will. He will be terrible, uh, terribly awesome. And note the language. He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. Bring it, I say. That's a, that's a great verse. I like it. I'm all about it. I'm a true worshiper of the one true God. I'm all about the gods of the earth being smashed. I, I like to see them reduced to nothing. The sooner the better. Again, this is about lordship. This is about all the gods of the earth. And the, and the whole world has gone after idolatry. It's what Babylon is all about. Babylon is, is the, the mother place of where idolatry was hatched. And then it goes to the furthest ends of the earth. This is about the lordship of God, the God of Israel, versus all the false gods of the world. And they're all going down. That's what the book says. They are going to be reduced in the minds of all to what they really are, which is nothing. He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth, every last one of them. Now, what God did in the Exodus was really all about lordship as well. Uh, you see, each of the plagues, and, and this is the major event in the Old Testament, once you get by creation, uh, what happened in the... Uh, the Exodus, that's the major event in the Old Testament. And, and what God did there when, in sending those plagues upon Egypt was really a direct challenge to one or more of the gods in each of the plagues. Starting with Pharaoh himself. Uh, one commentator writes, The Egyptians believed that their pharaohs were half man and half God. A ritual was held when a pharaoh had been on the throne for 30 years. Because at that point, they believed the Pharaoh was then transformed into a full God. <laughs> the Pharaoh was the most powerful person in Egypt. But notice what we read in the book of Exodus. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Yahweh. And earlier, uh, he had told Moses, Exodus 7, 5, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is what this is about. This is about who is, who is truly God. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. This was about who is the true God. So the Exodus was all about God establishing the truth of his lordship as the God of Israel, over all the false gods of Egypt. And what God did on a smaller scale in relation to Egypt, in the coming day of the Lord, he will do so in relation to the entire world. 
That's what the day of the Lord is about. It's about establishing his lordship ultimately. All the idolatry, all the false gods of the world, they're all going down. And they will be reduced to nothing. Expositor says, the Lord destroys the gods by destroying the nations that depend on these gods. These deities have no real existence apart from the people who serve them. That's true. They're not really gods. Now, there's demons behind idolatry, but there's no real other gods. They're all made-up gods. They're all pretend gods. Demon entities behind them? Yes. But there's no other real gods other than the one true God. Ultimately, in the climactic phase of the day of the Lord that ushers in the Messianic kingdom, all the nations will be humbled before the God of Israel. And all the peoples of the world will worship the one true God as found in the God of Israel, as ultimately revealed in the Messiah. Zephaniah 2.11 looks way down the way to this coming day. The day of the Lord is about the God of Israel putting every proudful thing down and exalting himself undeniably as Lord over all. Isaiah chapter 2 drives this point home as God in the day of the Lord is shown to drive pride literally down into the ground. Note just a few verses there from Isaiah chapter 2. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord... What day? The day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Again, in that same chapter, verses 17 and 18, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down. And the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols, the idols he shall utterly abolish. That's in sync with Zephaniah. And then here in Isaiah 2.19. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth. It's like God drives them right down into the ground. And why, what are they running from? From the terror of the Lord. He will be awesomely terrible in that day. From the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. When he arises to shake the earth mightily. That's the day of the Lord. No debate about who's Lord in that day. This is what the climax of the book of Revelation is all about. We come to the apex of the tribulation period when the idolatrous world as represented in Babylon comes crashing down, which is immediately then followed by a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! The climactic praise word saved in the New Testament until this point right here saying, Hallelujah! Power belongs to the Lord our God. And they go on to say, as the celebration goes on in heaven for six verses, Revelation 19, 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And I intend to be there in that multitude. And I hope you'll be there too. As the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God 
omnipotent reigns. That's what it's all about. It's all about God's lordship. And all of heaven gets it. And in the end, in the, end the whole earth will get it. Worship for the true God, who is Lord over all. The God who has revealed himself through and is forever in covenant relationship with Israel will alone be worshipped in that day. As Zephaniah 2.11b says, people shall worship him, each one from his own place or from his place. Indeed, all the shores of the nations. In other words, in that day, the whole world will be worshipping the God of Israel. Malachi 1.11 says, From the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Well, Zephaniah 2, 4 through 15, addresses all the enemies of Israel from every direction, in perhaps a representative way. First addressed, as I mentioned, is Philistia. To the west, in verses 4 through 7, chapter 2, 4 through 7. Then Moab and Ammon, to the east, 8 through 10, that we have looked at. Then Ethiopia, to the south, verse 12. And finally, Assyria, to the north. Verse 12 addresses the Ethiopians now to the south. So we have considered the, the uh, west, and we've considered the east, and now the south. Verse 12. You Ethiopians also... You shall be slain by my sword. Ethiopia was south of Egypt and inhabited by the Cushites. Now, in fact, various translations have the Cushites here in Zephaniah 2.12 instead of Ethiopians. They were the descendants of Ham. And they, they at one point, were a major power in the world. They even ruled over Egypt for over 100 years, from 720 to 654 B.C., so uh, we're talking now about this area down south here. This area, ancient Cush, Ethiopia, uh, below Egypt. So that's the, that's the area he's addressing here in verse 12. The sword of the Lord, the sword of God referred to in this verse is Babylon, which was the instrument that God used in the initial phase of the day of the Lord. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Ethiopia. And we have Ezekiel chiming in as well. Whoops. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 4. The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia. When the slain shall fall in Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken down. Again, all relates to uh, Babylon coming in and taking over that whole area. Verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. Okay, now we're going to talk about the north. We were to the south, now we're going up north. The prophetic story builds, as we've been working our way through the chapter, it builds to this climactic point because at the time that Zephaniah was writing, Assyria was still the greatest power in the world, although Babylon was ascending. Assyria was still, still the main player. And Assyria was actually located northeast of Judah. However, when they invaded the Holy Land, they came from the north. 
Instead of marching through the desert, they followed the Euphrates River up north and came down from there. So note on a map what they would do. So uh, they're over here, this area, and they're coming up. Instead of coming across the desert here, you don't want to do that. You're going to lose your army in the desert. They're all going to die out there. So they would follow the Euphrates River up, and they would come down uh, here from the north. That's what they would do. They would come down from the north. And so that's why they're addressed in that way. They were north, but northeast, as I say. Again, we believe that what is being described here is the overthrow of Assyria by Babylon. Assyria was the empire that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, recall, back in 722 B.C. And Assyria was a much-feared nation, infamous because of their cruelty. Now, we talk about people like Putin, who is crazy cruel, and he is. Uh, He's a thug. But... He had nothing on the Assyrians, believe me. Uh, The Assyrian Empire reigned supreme for about three generations, for about 883 to 612 B.C. And they mastered the art of war. And they mastered the art of torture. They were about torture. Torture techniques. And they love to brag about it. The Assyrians would cut off legs, arms, noses, tongues, ears, and other body parts. And they would gouge out eyes of their prisoners, burn children alive. It was brutal. One commentator wrote, The Assyrians depicted the torture in great detail on the walls of their imperial palaces. Uh, I've seen these uh, things inscribed on their walls. They made it graphic. They created tablets containing every single punishment the Assyrian army carried out. They cut off the limbs, gouged out the eyes, and then left those poor victims to roam around. The Assyrians were proud of their mass executions. There's no shame here. They loved to impale their victims on large stakes. Such sights instilled terror and fear into the rest of the population, which was the point. For the Assyrian kings... It was a showcase of their power. The Assyrian kings were fond of filleting their rebel leaders. They would cut the skin in strips, pulled it off from living victims. The victim's skin was hung in a visible place as a reminder for the rest of the citizens. Psychological warfare like we've probably not ever really read about in modern times. The Assyrians were brutal, almost beyond belief. And if you understand it, then you can kind of understand where Jonah was coming from in his reluctance to go to Nineveh. Those people should go to hell. Who wants to take the good news to them? Jonah was not volunteering. No, no, no. He didn't want mercy for them. And yet God was merciful, even to those people. Jonah did end up going. About 150 years before what we're reading about here in Zephaniah. But it was brutal. We can understand Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, which, as I say, he did about 150 years prior to Zephaniah's ministry. But as imposing and powerful and brutal as the Assyrian Empire was, God says that his sword Babylon is going to bring them down. And they did. And they did. 
God calls for Nineveh to be brought to desolation. The Babylonians, in combination with the Needs, destroyed Nineveh, the capital city, in 612 B.C., and then the entire empire collapsed shortly thereafter in 609 B.C. The day of the Lord brought the Assyrians down, and God used his sword, Babylon, to do it. God can do it any way he wants to do it. Note the specific description here. Nineveh will be a desolation as dry as the wilderness. Now you have to understand uh, and, and appreciate that line there. As dry as the wilderness? Really? You have to understand that Nineveh prided itself on an irrigation system. It was the most well-watered city in the world. It prided itself on the fame of its extensive irrigation system with water being supplied through conduits from as far as 25 miles away. It's famous for its gardens. Verse 14. The herd shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. Nineveh in its days as the thriving capital of Assyria was truly a wonder. The king's palace had at least 80 rooms. 9,880 feet of sculptured walls detailing his victories in battle. All kinds of gruesome sculptures. The city boasts a library of more than 20,000 clay tablets. And within the city were elaborate parks, botanical gardens, and a zoo. But this prophecy points to a time of decimation, depopulation, and destruction, which was fulfilled after the defeat at the hand of the Babylonians. The pelican here and the, the bittern are reflective of, of remote, deserted areas. And various creatures are in view, indicative of, of doleful sounds. Nobody's living there anymore. Got these strange birds making strange noises. David Levy says this. Nineveh's destruction was so complete that Alexander the Great marched his army over the buried city and never knew it. That's complete. Talk about being fulfilled to the letter. This prophecy was. That's the point. So entirely was the city wiped out that its very existence was questioned until evidence of it emerged and was unearthed by archaeologists in the 19th century. But for hundreds of years, it's like, was this place even in existence? Well, now we know it was. The more they dig, the more they find. But I'm telling you, this was fulfilled to the letter. Verse 15, this is the rejoicing city. We're talking about Nineveh yet. That dwelt securely that said in her heart, I am it, and there's none besides me. It's all about me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by shall hiss and shake his fist. Previously, Nineveh had been a carefree city that had not a care in the world. Some translate this as the exultant city, the rejoicing, the exultant city. They live the high life of prosperity, self-indulgence, in the image of a rejoicing city. 
But God said they were going down, and they did. And one reason this was the exalted city is because it was considered to be impregnable. The thought was they were so secure as to be invincible. Nobody could bring down Nineveh, they felt. The city had a 60-mile circumference with an outer wall. And inside this was an, uh, was an inside wall, an inner wall, with an 8-mile circumference. Now, this inner wall was 50, we, uh, 50 feet wide and 10 feet high, although some, uh, some report that they think it was much higher than that. It was at least 10 feet high, 50 feet wide. It had 1,200 guard towers. The city had a population in Jonah's day of at least 120,000 children, which means the actual population was more like 600,000 probably. So this was a large, well-fortified city. But right here we have a problem. Nineveh came to think she was self-sufficient. And so great that she made godlike claims, saying in her heart, I am it. There's none besides me. Now indeed, for over 200 years, Nineveh had strutted its stuff on the world stage. And it did seem like Nineveh was a self-made, great, and invincible city. It might seem that way 200 years in. But when you start thinking your great, of your greatness in God-like terms, you're in real trouble. Because the true God doesn't appreciate it. And he sees those who think like this. And he sees that they are brought down with a thud. Indeed, pride goes before a fall. In the scriptures, this language of there is none besides me is reserved for God alone. The sense of there is none besides me is that I am the greatest and there's no other like me. The sense is that I am dependent on no one. And that is true of God and God alone. To have a totally self-sufficient attitude is high arrogance that is just asking to be brought down. Note, for example, in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So this is a godlike claim that is to be made by God alone. For indeed, it is true only of Him. God alone can legitimately make this claim. However, people in their depravity often start to have a godlike complex in their prosperity. And in this, they're completely deceived. It was this level of arrogance that caused the devil to fall from heaven like lightning. It was the same sin of boastful pride expressed by the king of Babylon as seen in Isaiah 47, 8. And those that make claims of deification are sure to meet ruin. It's happened every time it's been tried, with the result being in the end they are scorned and treated with contempt. Their great braggadocio is brought to ruin because God sees to it. We have this statement here in 
Isaiah 10, 12. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. God hates all sin, but I think he's got a special hatred for pride. And pride is the besetting sin of mankind. You see, Assyria thought they were a self-made nation. Self-made, self-sufficient, great. They did not realize it was the God of Israel who allowed them to overtake the northern kingdom and so forth. They thought they were doing it. And boy, they did it in the flesh, uh, causing the world to tremble before them. So note the pattern here. When Israel is doing poorly, the tendency of the Gentile nations is to get haughty about it. They tend to forget Israel is something special in the eyes of God. And they completely forget about the reality of of the God of Israel being behind all that is happening with Israel, whether it be discipline or blessing. Moab and Ammon had no hesitation in reproaching God's people Israel, in making arrogant threats, and therefore God brought them down. The Assyrians in their conquest developed a God-like complex, and because of it, God brought them to utter desolation. There's a whole book in the Bible given over to the fall of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Do you know which book it is? It's the Old Testament Testament book of Nahum. And the book ends on this note concerning Nineveh. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? And boy, that is how the world felt. Well, God demands that he be recognized for who he is as God alone. And historically, he has consistently done this in relation to his people Israel. Fast forward now into the church age. And he's now doing it through the church. But that doesn't mean he has completely uh, set aside the nation of Israel. Temporarily, they're set aside in in terms of a prominent role. But God has consistently done this in relation to his people Israel. He has, his, he has his historically revealed himself to the world through Israel. And to this day, Israel is God's great apologetic. Talk about apologetics. What's the great proof of the God of the Bible? Consider Israel. Yes, a lot of other things to consider. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the truth of the church, and on and on. But uh, this is foundational. And thus he demands the world to recognize his sovereign lordship in relation to Israel. That's still true. Don't cut the Old Testament out of your Bibles. It's very relevant. And as noted in verse 11, when the day of the Lord settles out, all the peoples of the world will worship the one true God of Israel. He alone is the great I am, and there is none besides him. Ukrainian President Zelensky has become a hero to many in recent days for his exemplary courage. And it is commendable to see a man of courage. Uh, Who can ever forget memorable lines like, The fight is here, I need ammunition, not a ride. I mean, that was a pretty good line uh, when the president said, You know, hey, I'll, I'll give you a lift out of that territory. Yet one of my pastor friends noted that many seem to want to exalt Zelensky to an almost godlike status. 
no fault of his own necessarily. A popular song has come out as a tribute to him titled, Can One Man Save the World? Well, the answer is yes, but it's not Zelensky. Jesus in Matthew 24, 22 said in the tribulation period, things will become so bad that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Well, who's going to step in and save the day? Well, it's going to be none other than the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come riding on a valiant white horse with many crowns. And this one man, the God-man, will save the world. Thus, his lordship will clearly be established for all to see. And all will worship him as Lord of lords and King of kings. This is where the day of the Lord leads, ultimately to the lordship of Jesus Christ, triumphing over all. Even so come Lord Jesus. Let's stand and have our closing song. That's a good song to end on. Lord, indeed, you are an awesome God. And this is the great issue that we have in the prophetic scriptures in relationship to the day of the Lord. It is the day you will rise up. And it will be emphatically shown that you are the one true God, the Lord over all in the day of the Lord. And Lord, uh, you are going to be sanctified, as you say in in Ezekiel, in your people Israel. This is the medium that you have chosen. You could do it in lots of ways. You have revealed yourself in nature and all kinds of ways that we might bring out. But Lord, we thank you for how you have chosen to make yourself known to the world in conjunction with your people Israel. And even when Israel is out of place, so to speak, even when they're under discipline, you still hold the world accountable for how they mistreat your people. You still demand to be taken serious as the one true God who has revealed himself in conjunction with your people Israel. And so, Lord, we thank you for the prophetic scriptures, which look forward to this time when the whole world, subdued in the day of the Lord, 
those remaining, those who have come to repentance and go into the kingdom, the whole world is going to worship you. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we as the church, the bride of Christ, will return with you as you come in great power and great glory. And all will be humbled before you. Lord, it's true in history. We see uh, different layers of truth related to the day of the Lord. We see what you did in relationship to the, uh, the Babylonians back here. We see it in relationship to Philistia history. We see it in relationship to Moab and Ammon. We see it in relationship to Ethiopia. We see it in relationship to Assyria. All these things have been fulfilled. And yet there's a future aspect that relates to an even broader scope related to the entire world. And that too must yet be fulfilled. And it will be. And so Lord, we worship before you tonight the one true sovereign God who has revealed himself most fully and completely in the person of the Messiah, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, encourage us in these days. It's a crazy old world. Things seem to kind of be going off the wheels, but you're sovereign. And uh, we know ultimately where it goes as we read the back of the book. And so we rest in your sovereignty tonight, thanking you uh, for being our God, Uh, that we have a personal relationship with you, a new covenant relationship with you now uh, through Jesus Christ. So encourage our hearts in these days. Continue to use us. May we stand fast and firm for you and be a bold testimony in, in light of the scriptures. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week, everybody.